And this is the well. Drink full and ascend. The horse is the white of the eyes and dark within. Welcome to Twin Peaks Rewatch. From Idle Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. On this episode, we are discussing part eight of Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah, we are. Uh, This episode, (laughs) more than anything ever before, was written by Mark Frost and David Lynch (laughs) and was directed by David Lynch. It first aired on June 25th, 2017. What happened this week on Twin Peaks, Chris? This week, Bad Coop either got killed or didn't get killed or something else. The Nine Inch Nails perform. The first atomic bomb explodes in 1945 and Bob and Laura are born or foreseen or introduced as cosmic metaphors or something else. A gross roach toad is hatched in 1956. A pair of teens shares a moment. The town is lousy with woodmen. And this is the water and this is the well. Drink full. (laughs) You did it. You did it. Yeah. I I didn't know if you'd be able to pull it off. I I wasn't, but I tried. <sighs> you made an honest effort. Yes. So this uh this was a wild ass episode. Wait, first important correction from last week. Oh, excuse me. The guy in the scene where Cooper tackles the assassin has two arms. He doesn't have one arm. That's sorry true. About that. Get that crucial important information. Yeah, sorry. We should have vetted that that point before it went out. Yeah, that was from last week's episode, which many, included us, uh, <laughs> hailed as sort of a, a very plot-based standard return to form, a feel that we were in classic Twin Peaks last week, and it was great. Um, and then those threads were absolutely n- not addressed and, in fact, pushed as far from your mind as they possibly could be by this week's weird atomic cosmic journey of the mind. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I loved it so much. It was good. It was good I, stuff. I, it was incredible. I, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before that I sort of talked about the sort of... Twin Peaks' movie? We yeah. definitely talked about that last week. I won't talk about it for that long this time. I just want to say that it is... <laughs> I, I'm not making a sort of grand structural point here, but just purely from an imagery standpoint. Seriously, at this point, Lynch is actually just as literally as you can get doing things that only films would show us on the screen. Yep. Right? I mean, at least in American television that I'm familiar with, he... This does not happen. Yeah, this simply does not happen. I think we, th- we actually talked about this... We talked about that notion a little bit in episode three, which this episode I think is the closest to because episode three was the episode in which Cooper escapes, escapes in quotes from the lodge and sort of is in the in the purple room with the silent stop yeah. mo- with the stop motion film yeah. woman and it goes to the electrical socket and you know this episode shares a bunch of imagery with episode 3 but that episode felt to me for the first time like oh i see when twin peaks was first on in the early 90s and cooper had that dream and went into the red room and we had the backwards talking people and that felt like something you'd never before seen on tv um, and then, as everyone says, when they like applaud the existence of Twin Peaks, it laid the groundwork for a lot of the sort of surreal imagery that you see in television. And this feels like this season is Frost and Lynch saying, okay, well, in 2017, yeah. what can we put on television and what should we put on television that will broaden the sorts of things you've seen coming out of mm-hmm. your TV screen before? Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you know, reaching way back to the earliest parts of David Lynch's career, I mean, yep. Eraserhead-like Im- I mean, it, imagery and, and things to that effect, it's it's really it's, yeah amazing it, it i mean it feels like episode three in that regard to me as well where it is it's reaching backwards in david lynch's work and then also simultaneously often feels like he's 
reaching back into the history of both the mediums of film and television for sort yeah. of the imagery and the techniques that that are that are evoked, especially like the amount of black and white content in this episode and the way that mm-hmm. there was, again, that sort of stepped frame look that almost felt like right. it was like a silent film camera yeah. or like yeah, a sort yeah. of old stop motion illusion or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll get into the to all those specific yeah. components, but we should probably just discuss this episode in the order that it happened because there aren't. There, there are very few actual different threads. I think there's just there is really just one. Everything sort of by by weird ethereal means has a pretty direct cause and effect over the course of this whole episode. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two halves to it, right? There's everything before the flashback to 1945 and everything after from that point on. Yeah, I guess that's true. You're right. The, the episode opens with a very very direct continuation of the of events. So, yeah, with where we start with Bad Coop and uh, Ray. and Ray in the car. Yeah, it feels almost. Because we, because well, I'm jumping ahead for a tiny bit, but because it cuts to the Nine Inch Nails song, it feels like it was it almost that could have been the bookend between last episode and this episode. I mean, it works really well as edited, but there have been a couple times this season where it almost feels like the previous episode spills over or runs early, mm-hmm. and you get oh, and you sure. get a Roadhouse song like not yeah, quite at right, the end, but within right, five minutes right, of right, the beginning right. or end of the episode. Yeah, there's sort of a distinction between the end of a given like chapter of the story. And, and the, the end, end of, of an episode, episode. Yeah. and often those things are the same, yeah. but often they're not. I, I say that, but at the same time, the 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 nine inch nails performance it doesn't actually cap off Bad Coop's no it story fit, it fit really episode. well as just it, yeah. As just so let's a, let's, so let's just go through it. and talk about it. Yeah, I'm so, sorry, that's okay. So I'm sorry, uh, Chris. that's okay. So <laughs> so Bad Coop and Ray are obviously leaving. They're going somewhere that Coop refers to as. The farm. They're going to the farm, whatever yeah, that is. Which which Ray is, he's into that. And uh, Ray, dis- I mean, not that it matters much for uh, at this point, but well, maybe it does. I don't know. Ray is deceived by Coop, who, who sort of in- implies that Daria is still alive and waiting for a phone call. Ray has something Coop wants. They pull over. Coop intends to kill Ray. Ray has double-crossed him with the amazingly unnecessary line, tricked you, fucker, <laughs> which yep. I just thought was amazing. Tricked you, fucker. It uh, fits with his sort of low-rent Michael Madsen yeah, uh, aesthetic yeah, that, yeah, he, yeah. that he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he, What a Twin Peaks guy Ray is, by the way. Like, I, let's he's just, super he's Twin such, Peaks. What a Twin Peaks yeah. guy. Are we going to get a Ray-Red inter- interaction, do you think? Oh, uh, one can hope. The if, two shitty strongmen of season three, Twin Peaks. <laughs> if not, it's okay just for them to exist in the same show. Mm-hmm. So, Bad Coop is murdered and is then beset by the sort of ghostly woodsman characters. Yeah, which I guess there are more than one of. We learn it plentiful uh, yeah, with, with, with much evidence in this episode. Him, yeah. yeah, and they sort of... Did the way that they... Either I don't know. It's not entirely clear to me what they were doing to Cooper. I mean, I I, I assumed they were killing, finishing killing him, or like digging something out of him. It seemed like maybe yeah, but they were also that's kind what of just, I think they were, they were kind of just pawing and painting on him right. as well. Well, so when I, when it was happening, I thought it was maybe intended to be uh, a parallel or equivalent to when the glass box spirit thing, which I guess we now I know from the, the credits is the ex- or the experimental model uh, that was sort of rending and tearing at the two glass box watching teens. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of that, you know, the way they sort of like paw at the body and then it just, the body gets bloodier and bloodier. Right. That's kind of what it reminded me of, except that obviously Cooper, bad Coop we see is still alive, 
but were they removing were they removing Bob from him? It's it was hard to know because Bob sort of floats out, sort of transposed yeah. on one of those sort of just gummy head shapes, kind of like just an yeah. organic mass with Bob's face. Yeah, floats away with a with a good Bob look. So so like, what does it mean if we have Good Cooper as Dougie and D- Cooper doppelganger sans Bob? In the same world, like who the hell knows what any of this means? Yeah, because well, I I'd thought that that was maybe weirdly the end of Bad Coop, mm-hmm. and then we get the Nine Inch Nails concert, and then it cuts back to him sort of like coming to right, and we don't know what that means yet. Yeah, other than that, human form still walks the earth, I guess in some way. Right. Yeah, I I was gonna keep speculating, but that's it seems pointless since we don't know anything. Maybe so- he's gonna be Dale Cooper. Oh, that would be crazy if he, he turns back in a building. That would be strange. That would mean nothing. That would make but... no sense, yeah. Um, so we, we, you know, before he returns to life, we cut to a Nine Inch Nails concert in the Roadhouse, introduced uh... by the most classic old MC as the Nine Inch Nails, Yep, which is very good, very, very good. And I, I was sort of baffled by that when it started. It felt sort of indulgent to me, but the longer it went on, the more I loved it and felt like... It really, it felt like almost a sort of funeral dirge for Bad Coop to mm-hmm. me, at least in the moment before I knew we were going to cut back to him. You know, as we I were. I mean, it could be for Bob also, or for who knows. Yeah, right? yeah. It, it it just felt really, 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 really appropriate and extremely well pitched. I I by the yep. end of it, I was completely bought in. It lasted long enough, and sort of the Nine Inch Nails song they chose to play also ended up feeling really, I guess, tonally evocative of the bar scene in Fire Walk I with had me. The exact same reaction. Yeah. I mean, there was no one talking over it, but that feeling of just yeah. like, okay, yep. my brain is almost just being a Raced yep. by this by yep. this sound just yeah. blasting at me for this long. For sure, one of the one one of my original re- like sort of c- maybe ambivalent reactions was be- was because it felt so out of character for the Roadhouse specifically. But then, yeah, as it went on, I started thinking of the. I mean, I know it's not the same actual location, but but yes, I definitely started thinking of that Battle of Menti track from Firewalk with Me in the mm-hmm. Pink Room, I guess. Yeah, and. Uh, and just I just yeah the more the more I it, I sat with it the more I liked it. This whole episode, the longer I sat with it, the more that I liked it, including to right now. And I, I mean, I already liked it, but just like <laughs> my appreciation for it, I think will just continue to rise. This yeah. is an episode that I think as soon as when the... I get out of this this season, it's going to be like I mean, mm-hmm. for obvious and non obvious reasons, I think just sticks in the brain. Also, for sure, this episode has got to end up becoming the sort of definitive, divisive episode of this season. Like if you're in yeah. Twin Peaks season three for. Agent Dale Cooper and like cherry pie and great coffee. Right. This episode is just like, well, God, you know, what's funny, but this is a sort of meta element. But uh, did you see there was a tweet from uh, is it? I think Madchen Amick. Yeah, Shelly. And she had posted in the in on Twitter in the run up to this episode airing. She she posted a picture of uh, Shelly and Norma. Mm-hmm. And she just had some like sort of cute little rhyme that was that was like. We are sexy. We are great. We are ready for part eight. Tune in tonight, you guys. Little birdies have told me this one will blow your mind. And then it's it's the shot of Shelly and Norma, right. sort of side by side. Yeah, so good. And I, and, then, and of course, this episode had zero of those characters and zero of anything. I, I I thought she was like really priming us for a return to classic town of Twin Peaks. No, anyway, that doesn't matter and is not relevant to anything. But it it cracked me up as something that that my brain was primed for and then completely uh, went 
it in a more different direction than could ever be imagined. Yeah. The, speaking of that, there's an interview with Kyle McLaughlin that w- went up uh, on June 22nd, and he was talking about the fact that for for this episode, I mean, I don't know which specific detail it is, but David Lynch just basically locked himself away for a few days and worked on building some of the stuff for this episode and didn't tell the cast or anyone what any of it was. Mm. And he j- all he referred to it as is he- something special for one of the characters. And I have no idea what in this episode <laughs> that is because that could be anything in yeah. this entire episode. Mm-hmm. I it, mean, w- what else could he have been locking himself in a room working on other than the huge sort of Kubrickian effect sequence? Yeah, I thought that, that maybe up, like this middle third of the entire episode. I thought that maybe he literally built that like sort of old timey spaceship dome that was in the theater with the giant and that woman or something oh. like that. But I, but God, that looked like CG to me. Okay, most maybe. of that set, but yeah. I, it's hard to know. You're you're right. Actually, that was my guess too. That he actually just made sat in a room with some effects artist and tooled yeah. that crazy thing together. But who knows? Before we move on, the scene. The scene with Cooper and Ray, it's bookended by a couple things that are just very season three that I think are worth noting, which is Cooper being convinced that the car is bugged. Mm. And then he also dials. Yeah, he's got that app on his phone or he, whatever. Yeah, he, I think he inputs into his app yeah. D-E-G-W-W-8. And then he just throws his phone out the window and s- seems to act like the bugs are taken care of, but maybe that was him. They, they pull up to a truck while he's doing that. And the implication, I think, is that he somehow transferred the trackers to that truck. Yeah. And then after everything's done... When Bad Coop sort of gets uh, exhumed or something by by the woodsman and then disappears, and Ray's freaking out, he um, he calls someone who he refers to as Philip, which seems like it's either actual Philip Jeffries or fake Philip Jeffries was my assumption, and yeah. said, "I think he's dead, but he's found some kind of help, so I'm not 100 uh, percent." And I saw I saw something in Cooper. It may be the key to what this is about, which yeah. implies that Ray is more than just a minion and might actually. Have yeah, he's, he's at least aware that crazy stuff is happening. Yeah, just up until that moment, we'd thought that Ray was either just with Cooper as a dumb minion who was double crossing him for maybe some reward money, but yeah. now it seems like he's also for some reason been in contact with either Philip or fake Philip. Yeah. That's yep. that's it. Yeah. And no, now no, that's, that's good good important details. And now let us get to to July sixteenth, nineteen forty five, White Sands, New Mexico, five twenty nine AM, which is the site of the Trinity uh, atomic bomb test, which was the first atomic detonation yes. in human history. What a well put together thing like this episode is one of the most lavishly produced episodes of season three of twin peaks on <laughs> yeah, the whole like since we're starting with this explosion shot like this through that entire sequence through like all of the period footage and the weird creature in it like we've sort of poo-pooed mm-hmm. there being cheap effects and speculated on like yeah i don't did, know if i've pooped or we've sorry we've addressed the poo-pooing of cheap effects i mm-hmm. think even if we have not specifically poo-pooed them and it's been speculated like maybe this show when there was all the financial dispute stuff it was because they had to cheap out on the effects budget and we wouldn't see any high-end work this episode is a like wild feast of beautiful looking stuff yeah it's amazing um starting with this very slow 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 ominous like drone based push across a nuclear explosion it was i've never seen an atomic blast portrayed that way for a thing that's on film so often yeah yeah. like it was typically get a still framed shot yeah 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 it it was way scarier to have that proximity it also sort of evoked like nature footage like of a of a flower like of a desert bloom or something like that but then also and also it felt like the new york shots earlier um it felt like sort of of a piece with the way that david lynch shoots the woods of twin peaks it also was uh the slow forward motion of it felt 
extremely sort of like existentially ominous, you know, we, we so just push, the inevitability of it. Yeah. Kind of? We yeah. push all the way into the actual body of the mushroom cloud. And then from that point on, we're pretty much always moving forward yep. through whatever like sub molecular or metaphorical right. structures were inside of you, it. You talk uh, and it what? Sorry. Oh, and it, it the whole thing felt it, it, that entire sequence felt to me like, it was basically in the broad strokes, and I don't, it's really hard to parse the specifics, but in the broad strokes saying that sort of with this catastrophic act, humanity has irrevocably opened a sort of Pandora's box from which it cannot return. And there was an inevitability and sort of overwhelming momentum to it that was, uh, you know, I think really well reflected in this just like yep. slow, f- constant forward motion. To say something just after that, this just to back up when you were talking about the nuclear explosion probably not being historically accurate, did the shapes that they chose feel evocative to you of the shape of like of the of the arm's head? It, oh, it felt like I don't sort know. of it felt like at least sort of the shapes used were really similar to the shape language that we're seeing with a lot of the sort of lodge yeah. stuff. That's a good question. I don't know. I I, I didn't necessarily think it felt inauthentic it's but i just, just was when i was looking at historically inaccurate to the specific photographs of that, blast. of that yeah. blast it looked it just looked different to me that's but, also the blast that gordon cole has on his wall in the uh, i think or he at least has a very similar atomic blast in the background of his office yeah anyway i didn't mean to step on your talk about the existential pull of the no, blast no that's fine that was that was all i had to say about it i mean i don't I felt that as well. It, yeah, there, there's not. I, you know, I think anything more concrete we say is has to be couched as speculation or an interpretation. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Inside the blast was just crazy and really cool experimental film noise. Basically, just weird atmospheric mm-hmm. combination of like liquids and what felt like burning film and who knows how much like really really violent feeling explosions yeah. and stuff. It, it felt like the birth of a universe. Like, did you see um, the tree of life, the Terrence Malick film? Yes. Yeah. It reminded me of like that kind of sort of violent primordial upheaval. Yeah. There's you know? imagery like that also in, um, I think the fountain, the Darren Aronofsky yeah, movie. And, ob- well. and also yeah, yeah, 2001, yeah. a space odyssey. Yeah, of course. That's the, yeah. The first, the one big of those. example of that. Yeah. 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 yeah it had that. But whereas that, but whereas 2001, a space odyssey felt sort of um it felt like motion or travel or sort of like cosmic truth revealed this this was like the sort of painful organic like rupturing yeah. yeah yeah yep yeah the way that the way that the inside of that explosion also felt like cells dividing and sort of strange chemicals dropping into pools and stuff was mm-hmm. really 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 neat yep and again i think this is i don't obviously know anything about the specific production techniques used to create this i don't know how much of it was cg i mean i'm sure a fair amount of it was but again if you go back to david lynch films like Eraserhead, he for many you know he for decades has been interested in being very closely involved with chemical based special effects and, and things like that and i I would be. I would like. It would be fascinating at some point to learn at what all went. I know. Into I this. would love if people involved, because he'll never tell. But if yeah, people involved true. talk, this sequence was. I think it, it would be very hard to to pull apart all of the specific elements. But it didn't feel like yeah. any one thing, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. We were sort of moving from phase to phase. Everything segued very well. And, yeah. And like it felt like a progression. Uh, so we. 
I mean, uh, I guess we can just convenience. Store, yeah, right? yeah. That's. Uh, I guess we can just talk about things in the order that we they basically occurred. Yeah. Yes, we see the convenience store, which was very um, conspicuously labeled convenience store, which seems important. I wonder given if the, I wonder if that's because it's not literally the same location that we've seen that take place before. Or have we never seen the exterior of that convenience I w- store? I wasn't sure. I felt like we'd seen a or the convenience store in Fire Walk with me, but yes. I might be totally. Yes. I mean, we've seen the inside of it. Yeah. Sort of the the inside I mean, the convenience store or above the convenience store is the location in Fire Walk with me right. that sort of the the lodge spirits characters whatever inhabit where you sort of it's that dumpy rundown room with the mm-hmm. three sort of like fogged over windows that all the characters are in in Fire Walk with me and the the space above the convenience store has been referred to a billion times going all the way back to I think the first appearance of Mike when he was Gerard the shoe salesman right. There's the idea that he and Bob lived above the convenience store is what he said when mm-hmm. referring to the the lodge spirits when he was sort of in his in his drugged state. But then when when Mike comes back, he goes, oh, well, I mean, I know Bob Lidecker, the veterinarian. Right. Uh, I sold him some shoes. He works next to a con- next to a convenience store. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the like season one head fake of what's a dream reality and what's reality reality. But right. that um, it seems like we're getting increasingly concrete uh this episode seemed to be going out of its way to say like maybe it wasn't it wasn't saying anything explicitly but it felt well, it felt like the yeah, convenience I mean, we, store was sort of spatially well, the wood, near well, the and the woodsman characters i mean they seem very very similar to some of the denizens of that room in firewalk with me right mm-hmm. am i am remembering that correctly yeah yeah i think that yeah, i mean so you're I referring mean, to you refer to them as woodsman characters and there's a that's character that's how they're credited right in this oh, are they? Okay. in this series i feel like some i feel like there's a character in firewalk with me there's a there is a character or an actor in this episode called woodsman oh okay um who's who's i think sort of the foregrounded one of those guys yeah the one who gets the close up shots yeah yeah Okay, so that's so there that, is a character in Firewalk with me that is referred to as the woodsman, who is aesthetically really similar to this guy, but it's a different actor. And people, right? Have been, no, I, I yes. and people have been making comparisons to like, are those are these the same characters or related? Yeah. And it feels like I think this is the and first. They seem time, really intentionally dressed similarly. And this is this is I think the first time that that character has been in the closing credits yeah. of the season, even though, even right. though he appeared in the jail cell mm-hmm. next to um, Bill Hastings and he appeared in the morgue mm-hmm. next to Agent Knox or right. Lieutenant Knox, excuse right. me, right. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is all, yeah, it all seems resonant and very intentionally referential, you know, sort of self-referential. Yeah, this yeah. this episode, for as sort of ethereal and experimental and, like, unmoored as all of the imagery is, feels like we're also explicitly being told sort of the lore-based history of when the, like, spirits of the Lodge or whatever that presence is aggressively mm-hmm. crossed over into... Yep. Into Earth and the sort of birth of them as tangible presence in this world. Yep. Even though, as we know from season two, Owl Cave has been there for centuries and has been, uh, <laughs> yes. you know. God, do you think all this stuff is going to tie back into Owl Cave or not? I'm not entirely sure. It's hard, it's hard to know how much that stuff will sort of be relegated to, well, there's always been a presence, but this was when it boiled over and how yeah. much, because... I mean, to get into that stuff for a half a second, there's, you know, Mark Frost's book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, yeah. which we've talked about here or there. It's a, the huge, the huge sort of, um, like, it's it's billed as a novel that he, that he put out right before Twin Peaks season three that contains a ton of backstory and sort of gap filling of Twin Peaks lore, but it's all put together as sort of an evidence dossier. We were looking through that last night, and 
there is a little bit of crossover with that book and this because um, the book follows the the history. Uh, one of the biggest threads of the book is following the history of Doug Milford, who we know right. as uh, Dougie, but not the Dougie from season three. We know right. as Dougie, the old man. Um, the newspaper editor. The newspaper editor whose brother is the mayor who they both sort of mm-hmm. fight over that girl um, and are just generally wacky old guys. Um, but Doug, Dougie Milford in his younger years was involved with Major Briggs in um, Project Sign and Project Blue Book and was allegedly in his younger years the guy who was up on the mountain monitoring transmissions from outer space before Major Briggs was. In the book... He was in White Sands on the day of the Trinity test, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean anything at all other than it's... doesn't not mean anything. Right. Uh, yeah. There, well, there's no... there's no. It's just like a passing mention in the book. It just says he was there. And right. then later he went to Roswell and was an alien X-Files man. Right. Um, although that does then... <laughs> he then encounters a glass box. Uh, Do we think that the 1956 New Mexico is Roswell? Or do we not? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. All, all of that to say, it is funny that canonically in Twin Peaks, there's a Dougie uh, very nearby that nuclear blast that we saw. Yep. Um, but the, the book goes into like Lewis and Clark mapping the Pacific Northwest, and they meet a Native American tribe who has had some contact with Owl Cave, and it's the same tribe that is the label of the bathroom stall that Hawk finds. The Nez Perce. Yeah, the Nez Perce. So little bits of the secret history book are weaving themselves in and the secret history book is super connected to like the owl cave side of things but i don't know if we're ever going to get an explicit connection in the show yeah um i will say this episode and sort of doing that little research through the secret history book was probably my favorite experience with the secret history book because mm. that book is laid out like an fbi dossier that um i think the the implication is that Major Briggs put it together, and then Agent Preston was tasked by Gordon Cole to go through and annotate and organize the right. entire thing in a clean way. But being seeing that date and that location of you know of uh, White Sands, New Mexico, and going, geez, I feel like I read that in Secret History. Then pulling that tome off my desk and leafing through an FBI file of the history of Twin Peaks and going, aha, Dougie Milford right. was there on that day. It was like, yeah. whoa, that was a good like. Sort of yeah, it's like you sleuths. Yeah, it was like having cross-referenced information. Yeah, yeah, being able to cool. have my own little baby Twin Peaks FBI yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. where I found that moment in that book was actually like really rewarding, yeah, and then no, being disappointed cool. that there was no reference to 1956, but mm, also kind right. of relieved that we weren't super aggressive. Everything isn't just puzzle. It piecing. wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. having that one moment where those two things crossed, mm-hmm. and it feeling like digging out, like yeah, wedged in between some old copies of the Twin Peaks Post and like some pages of a book torn out of the book house yeah. was this reference to the thing that I had just seen on television. Like yep. that was cool. So big points to Mark Frost for pulling that off. <laughs> yeah. I think this episode we're seeing, you know, you said at the very beginning of the episode that this episode, unlike any before is written by Mark Frost and David Lynch. And I think, yeah, we're seeing the, an episode that is sort of built on the um, sort of foundation of Mark Frost's, love of sort of backported lore and sort of historical foundation for everything that's happening and sort of tying mythological events into historical events and so on. But the soul of it in how it actually was brought to life was David Lynch's sensibility. Yeah, David Lynch of, basically locking himself in a room and then yeah. coming out with this 
something that is more of the uh, his emotional like yeah aesthetic and emotional just experience that yeah. will wash over you. Yep. And then at the end, you go, I think I just saw the birth of Bob and Laura, Laura Palmer. Palmer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It felt like we were seeing the creation of a universe, or at least sort of the like. Or the collision, collision of two of universes. Two universes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we sort of got sidetracked there, but the th- next thing. The woodsmen sort yeah. of are milling around, and it's a combination of sort of films stepping back and forward in time, which felt mm-hmm. very much like Cooper's experience with the woman with the yes. sewn over face. Yeah. And the lights started flickering crazily. It actually, the way the sort of cadence of all the flickering felt like the Rancho Rosa logo at the beginning yeah. of the season yeah. to me. Um, and that just kind of... Which also, you could draw a line all the way back to the original to Frost, the Frost Lynch, Lynch logo. Yeah, logo. Yeah, it had that same feeling. Um, and that just kind of kept going for a while. And the camera sort of... Oh, yeah, it the, lasted a long the time. The camera lost focus and went in and out of focus. It felt mm-hmm. like it was really strange. Yeah. Um, and then eventually the camera sort of falls into a, like it kind of feels like it falls apart and there's almost like a strange like lens flare that looks like a liquid drop or something where the Mm -hmm. camera just sort of goes into some rings and then we're in blackness and that's the end of that sequence. Then uh, you see that floating gray figure which is known in episode one I think as what did you refer to it as? The experimental model. The experimental model. In this episode it's just credited as the experiment but it's played by the same actress. Okay, maybe I'm confused. No, it's, you're right. It, she people around episode one were referring to to it slash her as the experimental model played by Erica Enyan. Yeah. And in this episode, whatever it is, that strange sort of gray figure, which I think is the same, as far as we know, it's the same character yeah. that leapt out of the box and murdered the team. It seems like it, yeah. Uh, in this, it slash her is sort of floating through liquid space or something. Yeah. And then starts vomiting something that I thought at first was going to be a computer-generated version of Garmin Bosia. Maybe still I is. I thought that too, but it doesn't look like it's, it. Once it gets close, it just feels like it's more sort of molecular liquid shapes. Yeah. And inside one of the sort of globs there, that comes out is Well, Bob's there are a bunch face. of eggs. There are a bunch of things that are pretty, I think, pretty parsable as egg, like eggs. As okay. We, uh, like um, in, in, in one of those orbs that you see specifically Bob's face go flying out into the yeah. uh-huh. out out of that mass. Yeah, so after Bob is barfed out, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's we we move back into barfed that sort of Bob. After we after we've experienced barfed Bob as he's referred to by many fans at this point, <laughs> we we go back into that visual cacophony of color and the return of the of the heavy string music which is Penderecki Penderecki, yeah. piece called Threnity to the Victims of Hiroshima, yeah. which I mean, has a, obviously a direct correlation to when it first shows up in the scene, or in the in the episode coupled with the yeah, atomic bomb blast. Of course, yeah, but um, yeah, Kubrick used Kubrick Kubrick used Penderecki in The Shining. Kubrick was a like very notable user of twenty twentieth century new music, like sort of modern um, art music. Um, he used Ligeti in two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, which a lot in this episode is very reminiscent of. Yep, and he used Penderecki in The Shining. Both Penderecki and Ligeti were sort of giants of 20th century new music, and that felt very, like, present. Yeah, the combination this... of this imagery and that composer definitely evokes Kubrick massively. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yes. The, the oh God, this is a little bit on a side thing, but I just... Go for the, it. The, because it's Ligeti, uh, not Penderecki, but 
Um, Kubrick used Ladies Music in uh, 2001 very memorably, and I believe he approached Ligeti for permission to do that, and Ligeti was like very reticent to have his music used in a Hollywood film mm-hmm. until Kubrick actually showed him the context of how it would be used. And the composer was like, oh, shit. Yeah, please. <laughs> Seems please good. Go ahead. Yeah. And I, I only bring that up because the usage of actual contemporary 20th century art music, um, as opposed to uh, either pop music or film score, ex- you know, mm-hmm. composed film music was something that Kubrick really introduced uh, to mainstream Hollywood. And I, I just think that is a like it was a very like sort of notable and important choice that he brought and i i really i thought it was awesome hearing sort of music from that canon in this episode used in the way it was used because there's there's no replacement for it like you just you you basically don't film scores don't operate like right in that way i don't want to get too deep into this but does it does it still feel like a net positive to you that that style of music is almost exclusively paired with this style of imagery like there's no other filmic yeah. use it almost becomes it's a, like cliche, a cliche sort of yeah. yeah no i know what you mean and i yeah i guess i would say that this everything about this sequence is so unusual for television that it didn't you don't mind that it's a little bit of a sort of genre transplant yeah okay yeah yeah um uh, so we move from that to uh well we go we go into another sequence of sort of red there's the red blobs there's an there's another there's a, a an appearance of a metal orb but then we we go from that yeah to the the sea of purple waves that we last saw yeah. cooper looking out over in episode three at least i assume it's the same location it very much looks it like seems it. like it because then yeah. the the camera pans up from the ocean in a very slow shot up a big rock An cliff island, face yeah. to ha- reveal that crazy well, it looked like almost like Art Deco cast stuff. cement, like weirdy, yeah. a hybrid Art Deco brutalist yeah, building yeah. that also, f- for no concrete reason other than maybe my brain does David Lynch gap filling, felt it really evoked to me an abstract version of the sort of mansions that are up on the hills overlooking Los Angeles. The oh, way that sure. it was shot yeah. felt like that, and sort yeah. of the yeah. way that we'd seen Cooper in, I guess, that same space, not in the location that we zeroed in on, but somewhere in mm-hmm. there on that balcony looking out over it. It was. It felt really evocative of the shot, reverse shot that you traditionally get when you're showing one of those mansions sort of up by, I guess, by the Hollywood sign. <laughs> right. And then the yeah. reverse shot of the sort of sea of lights of Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Probably didn't mean to consciously be that in my brain, just uh, yeah, it's an looked parallel, back. Though. But yeah. I mean, also just that era, that's when you have yes. a, a lot of that architectural yes. style as uh, the interior, mansions up on a cliff. Yeah. The yeah. interior of this building was very much, what, like 20s, 30s Hollywood? Yeah. I, I, um, so yes, we're we're yeah, in we, this we're in this we we sort of push into this into the one little tiny, window. tiny window in the building. We're in this room. There's a a woman in sort of gorgeous elaborate attire, but she looks like she could be in a silent movie or yes. early talkie or yeah, something. Yeah, she looks like she's she's from 20s Hollywood as well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, she's sort of swaying to music. There's a big um, Tesla coil bell thing. That I guess that is the thing that is sort of emitting a 
periodic sound. A sort of alarm yeah, comes yeah, out Yeah, it, it seems like it's kind of acting like an alarm. <laughs> and then, yeah, then then uh, the giant, also known as Six Question Marks, I think, <laughs> yeah. sort of ambles over and in his best impression of the world's worst uh, room service guy, basically slowly just sort of leans over, looks concerned, and then just presses a button to turn off the alarm mm-hmm. and then walks away. And yeah. we don't know what that means. Uh, no, he I, 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 sort of at first it seems like he's confused or doesn't quite know what's going on but then he and that woman seem to take very explicit intentional action in uh, in response to it because they they go into a screening room where film is being projected where they watch this week's twin peaks episode yeah right <laughs> displaying the actual uh, atomic explosion and sort of associated and the craziness. convenience store stuff like and they, the convenience store stuff they watch right. they watch the two scenes that we had seen previously yes yes it seemed to me like that and was they, actually them the film is paused gets is paused on Bob's face oh yeah they see the they see three scenes right they yeah because they also see some of the abstract stuff yeah and then they stop it when Bob is on screen it felt like that was one of the few times that we see characters in the lodge um, or whatever this space yeah, is whatever it is watching events on Earth in real time as they happen. Like, it felt like... Well, we, Cooper does that, right? He sees himself. Right, Cooper looks at the curtains and sees and sees yeah. himself. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Presented very differently. They presented that as sort of a window into reality where this is portrayed as actual film. Yes, but, it was. it's you know, still been two times when, they're, when they've been really close to a moment where someone is crossing over from one side to the yeah. other or sort of where the fabric between those spaces gets weak. Mm-hmm. Time and of course, seems to even, line up. Even saying real time, who knows what that means, right? Because right. It, for all we know, this, and I mean, probably, who knows, like, how this time place exists out of, in time, and out of time entirely. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's this sort of, is it future or is it past? Yes. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah none, nothing ever literally means yeah. one and the same thing. But yeah, it, yeah I was just, it, we were given the impression that he was sort of using mm-hmm. that as a window into yes. observing those events yeah, and sort of pondering what they mean. what it seems like, yeah. And then uh, he floats up into the air, the giant does, and starts sort of emitting golden sparks. That yeah, turn- the only the only color, I guess we should indic- we should note oh, the, that like, this has all white. been in black and white. Yeah. Oh, right. It's all been in black and white. And it's important, actually, to point out that not only... Because the, fir- the first time we'd seen something explicitly in black and white in Twin Peaks Season 3 was when the giant or question mark, question mark, question mark is talking to Cooper yeah. at the very, 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 very beginning of the series yep. of Season 3. Yep. Um, he's talking about a weird scratching sound coming out of the record player. It's in black and white. And they seem to be in that same room because it had the same floor pattern that looked like it was like, yeah, it did look very like similar. a painting of water ripples or a painting of like a like velvet curtain or something like the The floor... Looked like a painting of the sort of like crumpled velvet curtain that you would see as the background to like the opening credit sequence of like an old Hollywood melodrama or something yeah. to me, which I probably isn't that, but that's what it that's what sure. it looked like. Anyway, so Cooper and the Giant were in that room mm-hmm. at some point in time. Yeah. Who knows when? But it seems like it's explicitly that same space. It does seem like it, yeah. And when the when the giants the giant sort of starts expelling golden particles out of his head. A little gold light hits him and the and the woman in that room. Yeah, and the the particles sort of as I think as you said earlier in this episode, they sort of form up into almost a vague tree shape, kind of. It's 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 hard to know. It's, it's right? hard to know. It's I mean, an organic it, it, shape of some kind. Yeah, I, I I guess I am hesitant to say tree because it's so it, it's so it's vague. really it's really swirly. Like it, it yeah. looked. I could yeah. Like it could have been like yeah. Who knows? It's it was almost evocative of some of the like Native American shapes and patterns that are like 
mm. painted in Ben Horn's office, but like it was just some pattern that yeah. I'm sure someone will know what it is. Yep. And out of that, again, is birthed a weir- a golden orb. Yeah. But in this time, it's a translucent one, not a metallic one. It floats down and the woman picks it up mm-hmm. and looks into it and we see Laura Palmer's face inside of it. Yeah. Like the photo, Laura Palmer's homecoming photo, and it's presented in a way that is identical to the Laura Palmer face that slowly drifts through the clouds after the really <laughs> creepy drone at the beginning of all of the season three introductions. Yeah, yeah. So she, she she kisses it. She lets it up into the. She it floats into the movie. Releases screen. it. Yeah, it goes through a weird sort of pipe system and then floats into the movie screen. Where as it meets the screen, it becomes black and white right. to match the imagery, which I I liked that. Yep. And then it floats down to earth. I mean it. I, I was waiting to see if they would be really specific about it going to the Pacific Northwest. It definitely goes into North America. and It could also, yeah, I was wondering, I was expecting it to either go into the Pacific Northwest or go to New Mexico. But mm. it just sort of kind of it, goes. It doesn't get specific enough. It just yeah. goes into the it goes, United it's States. It's sort of like roughly the middle of yeah. North America, yeah. Um, so that's that for that whole section. And then next we're in 1956 on August 5th in a desert Unknown mm. if it's literally the same desert, and then there's. I think it would have said right. Yeah. It seemed it seemed notable that it, it did not that it said New Mexico desert and not White Sands, but I don't know. Yeah, and then we see that uh, lump in the sand that's revealed to be an egg that cracks, and yeah. then that strange moth frog yeah. creature, the roach toad, as our friend JP LeBreton coined. <laughs> oh man, a roach toad. That. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Really, really grossly is born and sort of slowly meanders out of the shot. Yeah. Did this feel to you like it was all in all pulling from the genre of like atomic monster movies like Godzilla yes. or things like a lot of mystery science theater stuff like Gamera or the mm-hmm. giant Gila monster and stuff yes, like yeah. so many of those just like birthed by atomic energy and mm-hmm. egg out in the desert hatches and a bizarre creature comes out of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This episode felt very much in the spirit of those things where it's it's like we're going to explore the uh like what has man wrought basically yeah yeah through a sort of like genre exploration yeah but the genre in this case is david lynch experimental film yeah uh and also a 50s monster movie yeah yep uh one thing to mention quickly uh is that we cut from that scene where the the roach toad sort of waddles off out of the shot across the sand we cut from that to a shot of the moon again. And I mentioned that because earlier in the episode, we, after, after, um, bad coop is shot and collapses. There are sort of flashes of light, which we didn't mention. And then we see a shot of the, the moon. moon sort of shrouded yeah. in clouds. And it's yeah. a very similar, it's a different shot, but the same, yeah, the same feeling of the moon getting, yes. getting shrouded by. So clouds. I just wanted to mention that. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, we're at a gas station. It doesn't seem like it's the same, convenience store no i don't think it is yeah. i think it's just yeah. another place yeah. there's actually yeah we're, we're introduced to uh, the second of quite a few like period uh sort of mid-century sets yeah. in this episode yes definitely this is yeah, a, th- this this is a lavish is, episode it's this crazy. section is a very sort of lynchian americana with a disturbing uh, sort of dynamics yep. roiling underneath it. And also, and it then does, coming violently to the fore. And also, it does totally feel like act one of a sort of late 50s, early 60s monster movie. Yeah, yeah. Where you have the, the sort of cut of the cre- creepy monster being birthed from the atomic mm-hmm. blast, then it just cuts to 
goofy teens who are going to mm-hmm. have a run in yeah. with with it. Also, I mean, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but since since we're going out and mentioning things like fifties monster movies, kind of brought to mind for me Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. which is set in a very sort of classic picture of Americana, but you know the film opens with the camera sinking down deep into the dirt and you see ants kind of grubbing around and it's sort of taking um, this like picturesque mid-century vibe and then like just pushing into gross yep. creatures and, and dirt. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. And we get, we get these two, these two young teens. Yeah. They're like legitimately young kids, which is rare for Twin Peaks. It seems like teens- They were actually cast to te- play their age. Yeah, teens yeah. are usually 20-somethings in Twin Peaks yeah, playing teens. True. And these kids felt like little kids. Yeah. Uh, walking back from a dance, it seems like, mm-hmm. or from someplace where teen music was being played. Did you like that song? Yes, I did like that song. Yeah, yeah it was very sort of- uh, Then they find a lucky penny. Dialogue, yeah. Um, hope it brings you good luck. Mm-hmm. A lot of coins- a lot of coins going on in this in this season. Yep. Uh, we then we cut from those teens to a shadowy figure floating down into the desert, which I initially thought was a shadow of Kyle MacLachlan, but turned out oh. to be turned out huh. to be one of the woodsmen. They would sort of the woodsmen start filtering into town, mm-hmm. and they cost some driver some drivers. Which totally couple. also feels like a weird '50s monster movie thing to me. Like just all of yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like totally that couple. With, I mean, the woman screaming her like scream was pitched muffled, way yeah. down and mm-hmm. muffled. But that sort of just like affable, corpulent '50s white guy. Yeah. Looking freaked out as yep. that guy just keeps saying "Gotta light." Yeah, they sort of as he's saying, there's like audio distortion. It's a. It's just a. It gets really intense, and then flashing they, light. Those guys peel out, and then we cut back to the couple. Mm-hmm. Walking down the dirt road. Somehow the girl knows where he lives, which I wouldn't think to be notable, except that, that anything seems like it might be in this episode. But she's, she says, you know, you, you, you li- live in town, you live don't, in town you? don't you? Like, how do you know? I just know. I just know. You live by the school or whatever. Yeah. I had yeah. thought that was just incidental dialogue about like maybe they come from slightly different social castes or I something. I did too, but, but, but who knows? You never know. Yeah. Uh, he's he w- not he's not going out with Mary anymore, and she's glad to hear that. She's glad to hear that. Walks her home, uh, asks to give her a kiss. She isn't sure. He says just one. He, yeah, he gets he gets a kiss. Then they have a little like happy awkward wave, oppy, yeah. o- awkward dorky teen sort yeah. of looking at each other. They seem happy that this is f- happening. Mm-hmm. Then she waves awkwardly and goes inside. Yep. We then cut to a very David Lynchy establishing shot of the KPJK radio station, like a really distant shot of sort of the just square building in the tower. Mm-hmm. And the one of the woodsman guys starts walking towards it. Yeah, the, the track that's playing is uh, is by the Platters, which is a very classic sort of, I guess you'd call it like a doo-wop group. Yeah. Um, playing a song. The name of the song is My Prayer. Okay. And the, the lyrics begin, when the twilight is gone and no songbirds are singing. When the twilight is gone, you come into my heart. And here in my heart, you will stay while I pray. My prayer is to linger with you. And that seems very, almost literally resonant to what is going on in this episode. Yep. Um, so that that seems notable. And then that is um, that overlays a few scenes of classic kind of small town American life with the mechanic. And uh, there's like the diner, there's a diner and, you know, all that stuff that David Lynch loves. 
Yeah, all that mid-century stuff. Actually, sorry, you mentioning the lyrics to that reminds me of what the man from another place says, I think, in episode mm. three. Okay. When uh, when he's talking backwards, he yeah. says, she's filled with secrets where we're from, the birds sing a pretty song, and there's always music in the air, which mm. is totally just, I know that it's just another reference to the birds singing. But, sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is that no songbirds are singing anymore. Right, or currently, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then shit gets violent. That's <laughs> what happens. Yeah. The woodsman walks in, opens the door, asks the receptionist, got a light, and then starts just with one hand, like palming her head like a basketball, and then just crushing slowly, yeah. grossly crushing it as yep. blood starts pouring out. Yep. Um, the amount of blood and just disgusting, it was it was less high high speed than when those box watch, the glass box watching teens were killed, but it yeah. felt like the same level of just like disgusting. Yeah disgusting blood pouring out then yeah. i mean he does the same thing he walks into the dj room asks if he's got a light got a light got a light and starts crushing his head yeah he grabs switches a microphone on, in his other hand yeah. right yeah switches the microphone on and then says this is the water and this is the well drink full and descend the horse is the white of the eyes and the dark within and then repeats that again and again and again and again I, yeah did you perceive him as alternating the words descend and ascend no i just heard drink full and descend oh really okay yeah. all right um, well, maybe he did though. Yeah, I don't know. I, that I kind of that's kind of how it came off to me, but I could be. When I wrote it down, I wrote down "descend" three times in a row. Mm, so, but, okay, all right. I, that could be nothing. So take that as yeah. whatever you will take it. And as. as he's saying these things, we cut back to all of those sort of beautiful mid-century Americana scenes mm-hmm. as people, as the woman in the diner passes out, yeah. the mechanic passes out. Uh, we cut to the bug continuing to crawl. It turns out towards the girl's house. Mm-hmm. She seems like she's gonna maybe pass out. But she then, seems like she intentionally lies down. Yeah, she sort of lies down to go to sleep after looking at the after looking at the radio. Yeah. Um, then the bug, in the most deliberate, slow, oh, gross so way, gross. sort of just like lifts itself from the ground and flies up into her window, and then she opens up her mouth and it climbs in. Which I wonder was actually like, is that the drink full and descend as being? It referred seemed like to? it. I think he I, he as it was going into her mouth. The, he said drink full. Drink I mean, he's definitely said descend. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then sh- it's just so gross to watch. It's also, really what a nice piece of like visual effects work to yeah, see in the really middle of this show. Like yeah. it would just looked like that was happening. It yeah. was nasty. It was really gross. Uh, then she just closes her mouth. Yep. Uh, after that little sort of frog leg slowly like pops past her lip. Mm-hmm. Then the woodsman fully splats the radio DJ's head in just a vile, blood-drenched way. Mm-hmm. Walks out, and you hear some... He elect- walks out, sort of disappears into the Yeah, you the hear darkness. some sparks, and then off in the distance, you hear a horse. You hear... Yeah, I think you hear multiple horses. Yeah, horses sort of yeah. out... It's that, like, shot of the desert plains going off into the darkness, and you can just hear horses yeah. reverberating out in the space or yeah. somewhere else. Who knows? Yeah. Um, then the credits start over that desert shot, but then it cuts, to, and the majority of the credits play over the girl... Yeah. Asleep. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's twin. That's twin peaks. So it occurs to me that this episode of our of our podcast that is more than almost any before was largely just actually Us recapping trying plot, to describe which, to ourselves what happened. Because <laughs> it's funny because this well you'd think this would be the least recapable episode, and I guess the way we contended with that was by literally just describing every shot in order. It's so. Do I don't we, know how else you do that. I know, but do now that we've done that, I mean, we're obviously already running, starting to run to our full time here but do you want to actually try and I think we should try and defi- take, pick apart what any of it means yeah we should try to, d- to divine at least what w- w- what we think it, mean, it meant to us yeah um, I 
I feel like, oh, well, it's worth pointing out next week there is not an episode of Twin Peaks on the air. Right. But this feels like a very good mid-season break point. So yeah. maybe we should right now talk about what we think any of this stuff could mean and then do a sort of let's collect our thoughts on the season of Twin Peaks during the break week and do yeah. a reader mail episode and just sort of a let's holistically look at where we where we are so far. Yep. Does that seem good? I think so. Okay. So, yeah, so if you want to send us email about this episode or the season up to this point, you can do so at twinpeaks at idlethumbs.net. Yep. And we will hopefully just read a bunch of that stuff next week and talk about it. Yeah. I, I wish that we were getting another episode next week really badly, but I also don't <laughs> mind that we're getting a breather after yeah. this point in the season. Yeah. So I think we've sort of alluded to what we think this stuff could, could mean. It, it feels without a doubt like we are seeing a just sort of lore-heavy birth of all of this stuff coming to Earth. But as far as any of the specifics of it, do you have any 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 read on any of this stuff? Like that bug, at first I was like, oh, is that bug Bob? I right. don't think that bug is Bob. Is it Laura Palmer Is that somehow? Right, like I'd seen people... It seems too old. She, it seems too long I'd seen ago. people hypothesize that maybe the girl is Sarah, is Sarah Palmer. And yeah, that we sort I, of see that, that occurred she, to me while I was watching it as well. Right, because yeah. that, that bug is totally visually gross looking. Yeah. The notion of good and evil in David Lynch works don't always necessarily tie to aesthetic beauty. Like there are forces of good and there are forces of evil that can just be strange and disgusting. And then at the same time, that comes into direct conflict with his tendency to just say a blonde-haired, beautiful American woman is a force of yeah. pure good and a greasy, disgusting man yeah. is a force of evil. I wouldn't say there are tons of examples of Lynch's movies in which gross, disgusting things are actually portrayed as being good. I think that they're like, I think if they're not good, they're they're not necessarily explicitly evil either. Yeah. Like the entire, I mean, the entire sort of cast of characters of the Black Lodge or of the Lodge of the Red Room, whatever. Many of them help Agent Cooper and show up as signs of of good or of aid or provide the necessary thing that the world needs, even if the cost is not clean to make something good happen. And, uh, like, but that, you, like you mean like Mike or something? I mean, Mike like, is very much an ambivalent force. Like he I feel works like, for both for... I feel like Mike and the arm and the Tremonts are all characters who have at some point or another given a character a piece of information that they need or provided help. But you're right, they're not necessarily... They're not an explicit force of like of g- goodness. Yeah. I mean, if you if you brought it out to... to you, I mean, you mentioned Lynch's work generally and obviously The Elephant Man is an example of a film in which a character that society perceives as sort of misfigured is obviously treated extremely sympathetically. But I I definitely feel that on balance, generally speaking, Lynch often portrays, and, you know, this came up in earlier in this season, uh, you know, in our discussion, but generally speaking, he portrays good as more beautiful and physically decrepit as less good. That, mm-hmm. you know, I... That could, I'm sure that there are holes to poke in that, but that that's just how it tends to come off to me in his work. But also, who the hell knows? Like, yeah, I, there's no. It's, it'd be silly to try and like assign a strict rubric. Yep. To this stuff, it's it's hard. Like, I mean, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? The classic yeah. thing to say during <laughs> season three of Twin Peaks, because I hadn't noticed that there were weird egg shapes that were being vomited out along with Bob. Yeah. Which. Would potentially point to. Well, now I want to double check on that, but that was I. I wrote it down because it seemed so. And you wrote it down before we saw an egg in the desert I that did. hatches and I has did, a thing yeah, come out of it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there's a direct correlation between that 
really clean looking gold orb pop into the screen and become a sort of more blobby amorphous shape and then the next thing that we see is a lone spherical object in the desert yeah. that hatches and goes inside of that woman yeah like that egg or that that rather that Laura Palmer orb goes turns black and white then we cut to a black and white scene etc like were we witnessing that as the contiguous journey of that orb crossing over taking a new form and going yeah, into someone it, else it's hard you know? to say because that was separated by nine years Right. And which doesn't mean anything necessarily in the weird world of the lodge. Who the hell knows what year anything is? Probably no year. But, you know, it's true that those things were birthed. The show, at least on its surface, was suggesting that at the time of this nuclear test in 1945, at that moment, whatever that means translated in time to this other world, that is when these other entities, Bob and Laura, were possibly born or whatever they represent was born right. or whatever and then we're very like explicitly told now it's 1956 right or if not or born we're sent years, to earth i guess yeah or whatever yeah, yeah so yeah so i didn't necessarily read it as just a completely direct con- continuation but but again like the way time works it would be also silly to try and make any declarations like well it's 11 years later well that doesn't mean anything either so right so who knows yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean the, there's a without without um without actually trying without needing to parse the specific mechanics of it any further, there's definitely in the very, very broad strokes, you could probably argue that the unleashing of the destructive power of you know, violently harnessing atomic energy is loosed upon the world by mankind as a result of that, either as a result of that or as sort of a like beacon, this, you know, Bob or entities that feed on human pain and suffering and sorrow are awakened or born or or drawn, drawn to it. Yeah. And then, yeah. And that seems to be something that like primally is like birthed, you know, in this violent way, then in sort of response to that, it seems because of the way the alarm goes off and the giant and that woman react seemingly in response, um, some kind of um, counterpart counteracting force, either Laura Palmer or something that Laura Palmer symbolizes or something who the hell knows. I hope it's not. Yeah. It's whatever. Who knows is like (laughs) intentionally, you know, sent to the world to counteract yeah. that I guess um, I, 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 I hope I hope we're not <laughs> entering into a situation in which everything that happens with Laura Palmer and Bob and Leland and everyone else is just like some kind of completely preordained sequence of events if but the, I doubt if this it is, yeah it, it, it still is allowing a ton of space for these being representative forces that then end up inside of and sort of co-occupying reality with human vessels and then get incredibly complicated by the complexity that is human life. I hope like if we're there's in right now we're in a place where there is a a possible world where that sphere goes into the world, literally becomes the perfect being that is Laura Palmer. And the only reason that she has a fall from perfection is because of the corruption of Bob occupying her dad. Like, that would be the most surface-level, highly suspicious 
version of of events, and I don't think we're going to go that way. But it's 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 anxiety inducing that the that the show has even yeah. put the pieces on the board in a way such that right. that's possible. I mean, what when I imagine either that outcome or like opposite outcomes in which th- these sort of are more representative of like elemental um, kind of human impulses. There's a bunch of different sort of things I can puzzle through in my head. And honestly, I don't particularly like any of them. And so my my instinct in reaction to that is to not try and pick one because I have the, – there's just no way for us to, to really make concrete predictions. Right. And since I don't like any of the predictions I can think of anyway, I might as well just wait until I see what Frost and Lynch have in store for us, which will probably be more interesting than whatever like half baked thing I can come yeah. to. I know that sounds really stupid and like a cop out, but that's honestly how I feel right now. No, right. We're in a place right now where the only sort of parallels in the in sort of televised storytelling are things like literally the man in white and the man in black in Lost arguing over a gold right. glowing orb at the heart of an <laughs> island that controls the force of goodness in the universe. Like yeah. literally we've seen these colors pitted against each other with this imagery in like the worst uh, resolution of uh, ambiguous lore sort of meta arc in TV history like a decade ago. Yeah. And it seems from the way that everything has been presented in this episode of Twin Peaks, which was as a wild experimental like aesthetic and emotional short film, that that's not where it's going to be headed. So, yeah, it's attempting to then fit this fit the pegs that we've been given into the holes of what this usually means when we see it in modern TV is, is folly. I think you're totally yeah. right. Yeah. But what if it just cross cuts to lost next episode? And it's like, <laughs> and then meanwhile, That's just the, th- the giant turns, changes the channel on his And then he's like, ah, projector. what's on ABC? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, on that stupid note, maybe we should wrap up this yeah. episode of Twin Peaks rewatch. Please send better suggestions. Yeah. I, or, and thoughts. Yeah. Or whatever else. Yeah. I, I mean, again, Need to be clear, I loved this episode. Oh, it was I great. I loved the experience of sitting there watching it. I thought it was amazing. It really, it, people say, use words like unprecedented all the time, but it really did feel unprecedented for television. Uh, it was, I, I thought, incredible. And I'm really happy about it. And it, I think any fear that I had that this season was sort of settling into a like sort of Dougie like, kind of sameness has been utterly exploded and I can't possibly imagine that we aren't going to get a bunch more surprises for yeah, the rest of this thing. Actually, I've, I've, I mean, we ourselves have talked about the, the sort of feeling of, I wish this, I wish that I could just see it all or like, I w- this yeah. feels like a movie or, you know, people getting, feeling like the Dougie stuff is getting complacent. I would uh, like looking at this episode and the previous episode and every episode before it one thing that is true is that every individual episode of twin peaks season three has managed to basically do a 180 on my expectations from the week before and that's an experience that i would not have were i watching it in any form other than weekly it's just like that's true spending a a week going okay yeah i i oh jesus like then you get i guess i didn't know every sunday it's totally true it's totally true you're just thrown for a loop yep all right. Well, on that, send us your email to twinpeaks at idlethumbs.net. We, uh, our intention is to do a sort of mid-season, um, you know, state of the show, I guess, and, yeah. and 
read some of your email, talk about um, our thoughts up to this point, and then we'll be back again the week after that. Uh, our website is TwinPeaksRewatch.com, as has all of our, our information where you can find us on the internet. Um, if you like the show and it's, it's been a good partner to you as you as you follow Twin Peaks The Return, tell a friend, spread the word. That's the uh, word of mouth is the, really the only tool we have for getting this out there. And thank you so much for listening. So on that, we'll be back next week. Frattle Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. Bye. Bye.